if you can motivate people to move forward in the business independently, it's an amazing result when you get all these people working together and building a business. And, um, you know, my, my objective is actually to be the least capable person in the room at the end of the day. Greetings, everybody. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into some of the minds of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or people who are out there putting incredible tools of influence into action to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice externally in the world and also within your own mind, and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, my next guest is Red Bull air racing pilot, Matt Hall. Matt is a third generation pilot, a former RAAF fighter combat instructor, which for those of you in the know, is also a Top Gun instructor and an international unlimited aerobatic competitor. In 2009, he also not only became the first Australian to ever compete in the Red Bull Air Race World Championship. Some of you might have seen some of these Red Bull races. Mind-blowing stuff if you haven't, check it out. But he was also the first rookie to not only finish the race, but to do so spending the entire season on the podium. Now, none of that means much, Let me put it this way. He flies 30 foot above the ground at 400 kilometers per hour around some of the most challenging high pressure assault courses on the planet. And his leadership decisions have a 25 millisecond margin for error. That's 25 milliseconds he has to make potentially and often life or death decisions. Now, given how long it took me this morning just to choose a pair of earrings, I'm not thinking this is a career path for me anytime soon. However, when I first met Matt or when I first saw Matt, I saw him speaking at an event and it wasn't his sporting prowess or his adrenaline-fueled career that caught my attention. It was something altogether different to that. It was when he started talking about a crash and you'll hear us talk about this in the interview a particular time when he crashed his plane. Now, obviously, that's very serious in the world of flying a plane and certainly racing. And he took it very seriously. But it was what he did after the crash that caught my attention. It was the decisions that he made and what he learnt as part of that about himself as a leader, how he was making decisions and how he was running his team that I think are particularly poignant in the world of influence that we're looking at as part of this podcast. And so that's how we found ourselves, sat across a Skype connection, trying to decode what it means to lead at speed. What does it, what does it take to build and then lead a world-class team when one wrong call could end not only just your career, but also your life? And when the inevitable does happen, as it did, and the crash occurs, because in business and in life and anybody out there who's taken any kind of chance, at some stage, large or small, it will, what do you do next? What checks, rituals, tools do you put into place to make sure that not only can you get back to where you were, but that next time you can take it even further or go even faster? And here's the kicker with more stillness and precision than before. So to go faster with more stillness. And that to me, as a leader 
in my own right and as someone who has attempted and failed at at this particular question, leading at speed and has learned a lot of things along the way. Myself, I had so many questions about how to do that. You know, a lot of people talk about leadership, but not many people talk about firing themselves as a leader. Similarly, there's a lot of discussion around holding on in the face of adversity, you know, hold on, cling on. But there's not a lot of talk about how one of the largest and most powerful lessons in influence and in leadership that you will ever learn is how to let go. And then when all that is done, how do you step into your own mind, still your senses, and prepare yourself to sit in the cockpit and do the only job, the job that only you can do, and that is pilot the plane. So, as you can probably tell, I needed this conversation as much as anybody else, if not more. In fact, definitely more. So in this high-octane chat with Matt, we talked about how critical it is to know your role, know your value, and then find co-pilots for all the rest. Why smart leaders don't wait for the crash. How to admit you're a control freak early. Clue number one, you probably hate your life right now. The importance of breaking it all down, why you need to get forensic about what needs to be done and then real about whether you have the right team in place to make it happen. And why, ultimately, we all need to learn how to fire ourselves so we can focus when it counts. And this moment, by the way, this moment when we talked about when Matt decided to fire himself from the team, fire himself from a leadership role so he could focus on what he needed to do. And when he broke down exactly how he spends the hour before every flight literally minute to minute, will forever change how I prepare for any big event in my life. So this is me and the incredible Matt Hall talking about the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, the hardest of falls, and how to lead at speed. Enjoy. Matt Hall, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump straight into this one. Um, we're we're pretty much gonna be talking about leadership at speed. So let's start. Let's start with the question I always start with, and then we can get into more high octane stuff. So the question I usually begin with is: Do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? And for those who haven't listened before, the reason I ask that is it fascinates me the amount of people that I see on stages who are doing incredibly what seem like extroverted things who are actually introverts. And then it equally fascinates me um, the amount of very insightful, um, quiet people that I meet who would consider themselves to be extroverts. So it's just a topic that I'm fascinated in. Can you tell me introvert, extrovert? It's it's probably a funny one. Um, I'm, I consider myself... Um, an introvert around strangers. I'm, I'm actually quite a shy person. You know, if, if you dump me in a room full of people I don't know, I'm, I'd be much happier standing in the corner on my own, just uh, thoughts to myself. But uh, once the um, once the cameras are rolling um, or I'm around my friends, um, I'm generally the life of the party. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I work I work as need be, but uh, I'd say deep down I'm really an introvert. Which would make it difficult for you because you're, you know, literally all cameras are on you, like in millisecond detail as to what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, when um, when the cameras are on me, I'm I'm very much um, unaware they're on me. Uh, I am really just uh, 
Uh, in fact, how I compete as a sports person is I do everything intrinsic. You know, I keep the pressure off myself by just concentrating on what I'm doing is is uh, extremely selfish for myself, and it removes the pressure of performance of worrying about what everyone at home is thinking, or the people in the crowd are thinking, or my family are thinking, my friends are thinking. Um, I create my own little bubble and um, basically feel that I'm there on my own and I can do whatever I want. I'm going to ask you about that bubble in a little bit more depth later, but let's start out just. How would you describe what you do? Because I've tried to describe what you do to to various people and I'm fairly sure you would cringe if I even attempted it. So how do you describe what you do? Uh, What I do for a job, uh, well, specifically what I don't do is I'm not a a daredevil or an adrenaline junkie. Um, I race planes in the Red Bull Air Race, uh, which means we travel around the world and I fly in a racetrack um, and the racetrack itself uh, has me flying an aircraft about 30 feet off the ground at around about 400 kilometres an hour and pulling up to 12G. When I'm doing that, my body weighs over 800 kilos um, and uh, I have to do a lot of strain to stay conscious. So we've got minimal um, times for things to go wrong at 30 feet at those sort of speeds. You know, you've got um, less than a second for something to go wrong and all of a sudden you hit the ground. And we're also judged on our accuracy at times, which has a tolerance of about 25 milliseconds. So um, it could be seen as a high-risk job, uh, and it's also a very precise job where um, you know we're uh, we're racing to within uh, thousands of a second of the competitors. So um, a lot has to go right to win a race, and not much has to go wrong to lose or have something bad happen. So you're going 400 kilometers an hour, 30 feet off the ground. So 30 feet off the ground, what's that? That's like a tree. Yeah, exactly exactly so it's um it's pretty it's it's pretty uh, intensive uh we don't take passengers through the racetrack it's um it's just too intense for uh, for people to be able to deal with stay conscious let alone um um understand what's going on um but yeah um you know i flew jet fighters for a for a career and uh, you know i've been at uh, twice the speed of sound in those aircraft and uh what i do now has a much bigger speed rush than uh, flying a fighter at mac now I've seen a video of you of you doing this. So again, for anybody that's that's listening, that's finding this tricky to get your head around, just imagine a um, a theme park with loops and turns and and great big kind of Ferris wheels, and then imagine a small plane navigating that theme park at four hundred kilometers an hour. Um, I mean, some of the turns you have to do, like you have to turn the plane literally 180 degrees to fit through a gap of what? How wide is that gap? Yeah, well, the gaps, um, so we have to go through what we call air gates um, and they're inflated pylons and um, those pylons are 13 metres apart. So that sounds like a lot initially. Uh, The wingspan's about nine metres, so we've got about two metres on each wing tip clearance. Uh, But then what we do is we, uh, because... Is a racing line. You try and take the uh, the gate at the maximum angle possible, so that you're not wasting time trying to uh, get the gate lined up. So we'll close the um, the angle of the gates down until um, you know, you've basically got you know, half a meter on either wingtip, passing uh, passing those things at uh, 400 kilometers an hour. So what I tell people, it's um, it's probably equivalent to uh, driving your car through a uh, a toll booth, one of the old toll booths. Um, at about 200 kilometres an hour, but you're not lining it up from a long way back. You're, you're actually coming out of a corner with the wheels screeching and then you just straighten up at the last second and go through it at 200 kilometres an hour. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to try that. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm not going to add that to my list of things to try. So that's what you do. And that's what your 
your role in this looks like. But that's not actually what fascinated me. It terrified me. I'll give you that. But that's that's not what caught my not what caught my attention. Maybe because I'm not a speed freak, um, and I'm not very good with with anything that goes at high speed. But what what really interested me was everybody else on your team that it takes to make that happen, and your role as a leader of that team. And it, it really got me thinking after after watching you present. I'm going to ask you to tell a particular story in a second that if you can find a way to lead when the stakes are that high you know literally when your life is on the line and you can do it without becoming a total control freak then there's there's something that majority of us who learn who run businesses however big or small can can learn from that because I I mean I'm a control freak at the best and worst of times but if my life was on the line I, you'd want to believe I would turn into a, I, I'd be a monster. <laughs> so, so let's, let's jump into that. And anyone that wants to see more about the flying side of things, there's so many videos, um, check them out. They are incredible. Um, so how many people are there on your team? Like who else does it take to make this happen up until the moment of you, you know, hitting that G force? Yeah. So we have, uh, we have a four member team that's on site typically. So they're, they're the guys that are always, uh, at every race, uh, being you know, myself as the pilot, we have a, um, a team manager who's um, is there to make sure everybody's in the right spot, uh, that the branding looks good, that um, you know, any updates that are being fed get uh, distributed to the right people. Um, we have a technician who's responsible for the plane safety, uh, and you know everything is uh, the plane is actually um, in in accordance with all the rules because it's a it's a race. There's a lot of rules that need to be followed for the equipment. And I have a tactician who's, um, you know, looking at all of the race lines and the G and the application rates and, you know, um, and and working on a tactical level with me uh, as the pilot. And then outside of that, we have um, a support support group that don't necessarily come to the races. They come to some, but not all of them. Uh, we have uh, an aerodynamics um, design team. Um, we have a, an equipment manufacturing team. Um, we have, you know, sports psychologist, uh, personal trainer. Um, and then, you know, everything else then falls under a business, uh, that I have back home, um, that are making sure that, uh, everything's running, uh, correctly back here in Australia with our, uh, with our sideline business that, uh, you know, um, is, uh, generated via results in racing. So it's not a huge business, but it's, um, it's enough people involved that, uh, I, I've always, um, you know, I'm always watching what's going on, but also trying to, um, as you say, you know, remove my control freak tendency because I think anyone that uh you know does what I do and flies planes you're you're basically a, an alpha male uh, really and um letting go of the reins is probably one of the hardest things we actually have to do uh, but it is uh, absolutely necessary if I'm going to perform at a peak level in sport as a sportsman I've got to be able to um release the reins in the business level and focus as an athlete it's it's often said that you know business is a game of inches you hear that a lot you know, incremental inches. But for you, your your business is a game of milliseconds. 25 milliseconds is your decision-making framework when you're up there. And that takes a lot of people on the ground and a lot of trust and a lot of faith and a lot of distributed leadership to make that happen. There was one particular time in your life I've heard you, I've heard you as a speaker and 
that I've heard you talk about where you really figured that out the hard way that you needed to hand over some control to other people. Can you, can you tell that story? Yeah, I had an event in 2010, an incident, and um, it was a culmination of a, a lot of a lot of build-up, um, and really the, the build-up was all business-related build-up. Um, the lead-up was basically um, we did we'd done quite well in the previous year of racing, and everybody was filling my head with the ideas that I would become the world champion. I focused very hard on trying to have the fastest plan I possibly could. Uh, and I would fly as fast as I possibly could to try and be the world champion. And I was kind of looking at the team as almost um, just um, a support for me to then just go and do everything I had to do to become world champion. Um, we ended up uh, having about four team changes that uh, in the first three races, uh, just because I didn't think people were up to scratch or weren't doing the right thing. And I was going through rapid team changes with most of my attention focused on um, on results. And uh, when we got to the fourth race of the season, um, we had a we just had another team change uh, due to uh, one of my team members having a baby. So basically I was the only member on the team who had ever done more than two races. But I didn't think that was a problem because I, you know, I was a control freak and um, I knew everyone's job. So I could, I could uh, basically tell everyone what to do and how to do it. And I'll just basically brute force my way through the um, through the race and get a great result regardless. Um, but what ultimately happened was um, I was so focused on everybody else's jobs that I actually forgot to focus on my own job um, and uh, went out there and uh, basically crashed my aircraft. It probably wasn't really what you'd uh, say it was a total crash because I actually bounced off the um, the water, you know, at high speed and uh, tore a few pieces of the aircraft off. But uh, I was able to recover control of the aircraft quite rapidly and um, and fly it back to the runway and, and land it. So I didn't end up as a, a smoking hole in the ground, but um, it was uh, quite an eye-opener. What we what we decided to do, my wife, she's, she's actually a, um, a, a military-trained um, crash investigator as well, so it's <laughs> pretty handy. So we, um, we had to figure out what went wrong and why it went wrong and then come up with definitive uh, solutions to ensure it never happened again. Um, that was the only way that either of us was prepared to continue with uh, with the racing. So she basically said, unless we figure out how you can do this better, I don't, I don't want this to happen anymore, which is a completely understandable response. And I'm sure that you were in complete agreement at that point. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I was in complete agreement because, um, you know, uh, we had a we had a young son, and um, you know my my life. I, I'd finally uh, moved out of that whole. Uh, I'm a young fighter pilot, and I'm invincible, and uh, it's only me to live for. To uh, I'm now a family man. I've got a young son, and um, I know I can actually hurt myself. It also takes the, in my experience, and these are my words, and you you, you know you correct me if it, if it doesn't feel that way for you, but it also takes the joy out of it, doesn't it? Like it takes the juice out of it. When you go into control freak mode, when you convince yourself that nothing will happen unless you do it, it just strips all the joy out of, out of doing it in the first place. It, it really does. Um, because you, uh, you put a huge amount of, um, second guessing on yourself and, uh, yeah, stress, uh, Stress is actually generated by predicting bad results in the future. That's the only reason people ever get stressed. You, you really get stressed 
during an execution phase because you're now so focused on the now, you're not stressed anymore. Um, stress is generated by predicting the future and predicting a bad result in the future. So you have to find what the problem is um, and fix that issue so that then you can then take off again, not worried about, I hope I, I, hope I live during this flight. The only concern you have may be a performance um, concern, but a performance concern isn't life and death. And so what's the, so you and your wife sat down, I'm assuming um, your crash, crash investigator wife, who was obviously very grateful she didn't have a crash to investigate or not a <laughs> horrific crash to investigate, um, sat down and worked out some things. So let's get to the the nuts and bolts here of, of what you learned, because what you learned here when your life is on the line is is no doubt applicable across pretty much every leadership situation, high stakes leadership situation that I can think of. So what did you, what's the most important thing? Let's start there. What's the most important thing that you learned or that you figured out? The most important thing we figured out was that I was a control freak. Um, I, I wasn't trusting people to do their job uh, adequately. So I was, I was basically making sure that if anything in the business was done, I was looking over their shoulder or correcting them as they were doing it. Um, and the, the problem with that is that uh, I didn't have the time to be able to do it in the first place, but it also degraded the performance of the team because they there was almost zero engagement from the team because they were sitting there going, well, if I try and do something, I'm going to get in trouble for being proactive and not waiting for Matt to be around so he could watch over my shoulder and tell me what I was doing wrong. Um, it reduced the enjoyment of the team with what they were doing. It stifled any development um of 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 the business so the the main thing we found out was that me being a control freak uh, meant that the uh, the trust was gone and it also meant that i was no longer concentrating on anything to do with me either being a leader or me being my own employee as a pilot i was basically uh, stuck in the middle as were the team and performance in all aspects, uh, dropped. So what was the first thing that you did differently? What was the first thing that you implemented? Yeah, so specifically on this this area, what we did is we um, we just started writing down everything that was needed to um, to run the team, um, both at home and, uh, and at the race. And it was really a start from scratch point. Let's redesign the business. Let's redesign the structure. Let's redesign the roles and responsibilities of each uh, team member, and uh, basically, you know, writing job descriptions for every single position. And I had I had a couple of job descriptions and different hats I had to wear, um, because you know I'm the business owner and the CEO is one hat, but during the race week, I'm actually the athlete and the pilot, uh, putting that hat on. Um, so we we stovepiped basically all the roles within the business and then made people accountable to those roles and responsibilities. Uh, we tried to figure out in a, in a rapid manner because you know, there's, a, there's a season underway and you know, we didn't have the luxury of just shutting down for six months, um, but we were rapidly able to figure out who was capable of meeting all of their roles and responsibilities, who was capable but unable due to training or equipment, and who was just unable. And um, that was able then to you know, allow me to relax a bit that 
to, to trust the team knowing that they could actually do their job. Um, but the most important part out of it was that my job description for race week was actually fly the plane and that's it. Um, we, we gained peak performance. You know, the objective of a race team is to win races and we gained peak performance in regard to that objective by me focusing as the pilot solely on flying the plane. Did you literally, I'm just thinking this through, did you literally, once you had those job descriptions, did you sit down with the current members of the team and go, right, I have nutted all of this out. How do you feel about this job description? Do you feel like this is A, the job you signed up for, B, a job that you are equipped to do, um, a job that you want to do? Is that Was that the next step in that process? There was a step in between, and that step in between was um, sit down with the list and go through um, what they thought their list should be. So have them have them tell me what they thought their job was as well. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in buy-in, and uh, you get you get passionate uh, employees who actually think they're the ones that are also designing their their career structure and their and their roles and responsibilities. So. I wanted to get their feedback. I wanted to use their experience to redesign the team and um, and the business. Um, so what I did then after getting their feedback was then combine all the roles and responsibilities, my ideas, their ideas, and then one-on-one sit down and exactly as you say, go through, this is, this is what I think uh, your job title is rather than just, uh, you know, you're there to help me. It's like, this is your specific role. Uh, these are your responsibilities. Um, these are your accountabilities. Uh, and as you say, just ask, you know, does this match your expectation of what you know you believe you should be doing for the team? And do you think you're capable of this? And and really, really almost go through another um, job interview process with them. I'll, I'll make them calm at the start saying, you know, this is not a job interview. You're, you know, your job is currently not at risk, but what we need to do is make sure you you're the right person for this particular job. And if you're not, we may be able to um, put you somewhere else in the team that where you are a better, a better fit. Um, so it, it was, it was just regaining that uh, communication and regaining the confidence in each other to make sure that uh, when we step away from, um, from the, uh, the controlling situation that uh, everyone is confident that it's going to, uh, it's going to work. The, um, you reminded me of a conversation I had with somebody who had worked very closely with the All Blacks recently, and he said, "People rise to the challenges that they choose. So if you if you want someone to rise to it, then co-create a challenge with them, like involve them, which is exactly essentially what you're saying there. Get them to come to you with what they think their job description should be. Exactly, exactly. And I, I'm I'm also a big believer that um, if if you can um, motivate people to 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 move forward in the business uh, independently, um, you know, it, it's it's an amazing result when you get all these people working together and building a business. Um, and um, you know, my my objective is actually to be the least capable person in the room at the end of the day. I love that to be the to be the least capable person. And, and the reason I love that it's not a I don't think it's not a, as you would know it's not a laziness thing. It's just when you go in with that mindset, you you have so much more respect and admiration for the people that you work with. The pressure just comes off your shoulders because you have full faith in the smarts of the people who are inside the room 
as opposed to walking into the room feeling like the most capable person, which, as you've said, is a huge amount of pressure. It strips you of any joy and it just cripples your ability to be able to perform as a leader or as the person who's out there spearheading the team at 400 kilometers an hour. The other thing I was thinking about, I was trying to put myself in your, not shoes, your boots. And I was thinking, as you get on that plane, you know, you can't wonder if things have been done. Because again, your life's on the line. You have to know, like when you're climbing into that cockpit, you have to know. And and most leaders will tell you that, you know, sometimes you go into situations and you think, oh God, I wonder if, I hope that happened or I hope that those boxes have been, have been ticked. What systems checks, you know, you don't obviously, you don't need to get really granular with it, but I'm interested. What systems and checks did you put in place um, to make sure that when you got in that cockpit, you knew without a shadow of a doubt? Or was it just a leap of faith? I'm, I'm hoping not. No, so we, we're a very regimented team. Um, I'm the only ex-military person on the team, but um, I've, I've utilised you know, my 18 years of military training to to rebuild the team around that. So what we do is we have very thorough um, routines and procedures in place um, and we initiate every session of routine and procedures, depending on you know which stage we're up to, with um, with either uh, morning briefs and then uh, update briefs during the day where the whole team comes together. We run through a checklist of where we're at, what needs to happen, um, and uh, what the what the next set of timelines are, and then we split again to um, to then go and do our do our business of what we're doing. And then when we get to the final hour before I get in the plane, it's a very, uh, very regimented minute by minute uh, routine that we follow. Um, with my objective, I've told the team that we're not a, we're not a, a no talk environment, but I, I say that the objective is that we should be able to do the last one hour until I take off without a word being said. Um, because that demonstrates absolute trust uh, in each other and absolute reliability from the individuals that nothing ever has to be questioned or pointed out because everyone is always in exactly the same place ready for their responsibilities. And um, there's nothing more satisfying for me that as I close the canopy to start the aircraft, and uh, it sounds strange, it's probably my introverted way, but it's uh, I have not had to communicate with the team. I've just sat there and been in my own little world and I find myself sitting in my little office about to start a plane and go race it. And it's um, it's such a joy to get to that position without a single concern in the world. And then in that last hour, is there anything that happens just before that last hour? I'm, again, it's probably my control freak coming out now, but I'm like, is there not a moment where you kind of pull everybody around and go, okay, as everything on your checklist checked off, can you all just look me in the eye and tell me that everything is checked off? Do you have a moment like that or you just, you go into it with full trust? Now, at that point, um, I go into it with full trust, but um, so peeling it back a little bit further, what we do when we first get to the race, um, I formally take my CEO hat off and I do that in front of the team, basically on the first day of the race meet. Um, I'll... I'm the team owner, the team principal, and I'll pull everyone together in the team and say, right, here's what happened last race. We've had our debrief. Here's what we've already talked about. We're, we're going to do at this race. 
Let's go through it in detail. Make sure everybody is happy they've got what they need to do their job. Make sure everyone's communicating. Uh, every, everything is um, everything's flowing. And at that point, I'll basically say, right, I'm handing over. And then I hand over the reins of the team to my team manager. And then I just put my pilot hat on. So that's where I, I scrunch up the piece of paper that's got CEO and I throw it in the bin and I pull out the piece of paper that says, you know, race pilot roles and responsibilities. Do you literally do that? Do you literally put it on a piece of paper and throw it away? I don't literally do it. It's a, I guess, metaphorically, but uh, it's a very conscious step that I do, that I back away from being a decision maker in the team. And uh, it also, that also removes pressure from for me because I'm now not worrying about budgets. Um, it's a very, very conscious mentality that I adopt so that when we have those meetings during the day prior to me going flying, I'm not the one making the meet, calling the meetings. They're being, they're being um, uh, timetabled and then run by my team manager. And I am just the pilot and he's the one looking at everyone going, okay, is everyone on top of everything? Um, you know, and I rely on the communication, the honesty and the integrity of the individual members in which I've been able to get the right team members with those qualities. And I just, you know, as I say, I just sit there as the pilot and go, all I've got to do is uh, get to the track, lean it to this rate. Um, you know, and I'll talk to the, I'll talking with the, um, the tactician about the specifics I have to do as the pilot, and that's all I have to talk about. And everyone else is under the control of the team manager. I th- the reason I asked is because I actually think that that's would be an incredibly powerful ritual for any leader to to have that moment if you're going into a process or you're going into a particular chain of events where you really need to focus to actually sit down with the team and go right as of the second I take off my I resign as CEO I am now the pilot in this team and I hand over the reins I hand over the reins and my faith and my trust to you guys to make the to make the right calls and one empowering what what a incredibly focused moment that would be for the leader to be able to do that to be able to go off and have that formal handing over of a baton but also for the team to have that moment of like right we're on now it's go time and it very much so and um and you see it you know i'll see it post race um you know if we've had a good result or a bad result regardless i'll uh, i'll see footage of it afterwards because the, the team will be in the in the hangar you know just like formula one they're sitting around the tv watching what's going on um yeah because that's the only way they can really see the details and the timings and all that sort of stuff and and you'll see their raw emotion coming out i'm in the track so i'm there in the plane on my own intrinsic mat just focused purely on my own experience to do it the best i can for myself and um then i'll see afterwards my extremely loyal and professional and motivated and proactive team um jumping for joy or breaking out in tears and it's um it's a very yeah it's 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 extremely powerful for them they they have the buy-in they have the passion they have the they have the um you know the um the desire to make it work and they'll go so far out of their way to make it work um and they'll go so far out of the way to help me make it work and uh yeah it's a it's a when you get a team in any business that supports the team owner to that level um yeah it's a it's an it's you know they're, they're tear up moments when you see it happen that's a symptom of of extreme ownership isn't it that's the 
what you're seeing there, the passion and the joy and the raw emotion, that's the, a symptom of, of owning something to that extent. And you can only own something to that extent if somebody gives it to you, if somebody hands it over, if somebody lets it go, um, which is your job. Exactly. And, that, and that's the leadership side that, you know, the, the, it's, it's funny, it's ironic that the, the best form of leadership I can do is hand over the leadership. Mm, yeah. And it, like I said, it takes, if you can do it, playing with those stakes um, at those speeds, then, you know, there's no reason on earth why the, any leader across the world shouldn't be able to find a way, find a way to make that happen in their own teams. Um, I'm going to move away from leadership just just a second. Um, I want to talk about you before a flight. So you, you, you've handed over, you've, you've resigned, you've handed in the piece of paper, you've resigned as CEO. You're now a pilot. Is there a ritual? Because again, you're about to get into this cockpit to do something that is life-threatening. Do you do you have a ritual that you do? I'm just thinking about how you would influence your own brain then. How would you keep yourself focused, on track, clear your mind? Is there something that you do? Yeah, I, I have a very clear process that I follow um, because it is a stressful environment. You know, I'm, in any athlete, uh, has to have some form of ritual, I believe, to uh, to clear their mind, because uh, you don't want to you don't want to start competing in your sport uh, at an international level, uh, worried about the future or worried about the past. Yeah, you only can be concerned about the present, and uh, you have to have a way of controlling your mind um, to be able to um, narrow down your focus so that distractions don't even register. Um, you don't even go, you don't even see distractions. You only see um, the task at hand um, and items that are very relevant to the task at hand. It's, um, it comes about through routine and discipline um, and process leads to people to be able to do it, um, you know, face very complex or um, dangerous or um, high pressure situations with a clear mind and, um, and, uh, achieve things that most people wouldn't have even considered possible um, by using very, very clear thought processes and, in fact, engaging something called temporal distortion, which is where you actually speed your brain up, which has the effect for the, the brain owner that time has slowed down. Um, so that's ultimately what I'm trying to get to um, in my pre-race routine. So just walk me through that. So you've you said in order to do that temporal distortion you need to speed your brain up which is counterintuitive really you're saying you need to speed your brain up in order to slow it down break that down for me yeah so so what it is is um you know it's you know it's, it's had a lot of uh words thrown around um but uh, in sporting terms it's called flow or uh, being in the zone and it's where you know you've got you, you have absolute clarity and you see amazing detail of what is happening right now, but you don't have much memory of the event occurring afterwards um, because you're not using any brain process to, to store what's going on or reflect on what's just happened. You are, you are absolutely in the moment and it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's almost a euphoric feeling. So, and while it sounds counterintuitive that you're actually speeding your brain up, um, you know, effectively what you're doing is you're, you're increasing the 
the capability of the brain to take in information and process it because it's it's working at a very high level. Um, and then what that means is that uh, everything seems to be happening, um, you know, in slow motion while you while while you're just sitting there observing. Um, you're not actually having conscious thought on what you need to be doing. Um, you are your body is just doing what it has to do, and um, it actually seems like you're an observer uh, of your own actions because there's zero thought going into your own um, your own processes. It's just watching the result occurring right now. Um, and the only way you can get into that state of mind is through a, um, a ritual, uh, a process um, that you repeat over and over again um, that trains your brain to uh, remove external uh, influences that are not relevant to your current situation. What mine is, um, it's as I said, it starts about one hour prior to prior to the flight, where I'll actually lie down and have a sleep. Um, and most people can't believe that. So an hour. I was about I'm... to interrupt you then. Just, hold, hang on. So you prepare for a race, like you're able to sleep. I I can't even imagine. Well, firstly. That's incredible because the lack of adrenaline that must be in your system to enable you to sleep speaks a lot for you, your ability to be present just in general. How do, are you, do you just close your eyes and go to sleep? Is that something you do to put yourself to sleep? Yeah, it's a, it's a basic form of medica meditation that I do. I, I lie down um, in the back of the hangar. Um, I just put some relaxing music on and, um, and then just concentrate on my own breathing and um and then just work through my whole body just relaxing every muscle in my body um and my objective there is to baseline my body um so what i try and do is i try and basically clear the slate um relax my body to the point where i'm asleep so that when i wake up and i wake up on time based on um, a certain song kicking in in my playlist then it's my trigger that goes okay i'm awake okay that's right i'm about to go racing um, but that means that every time I start at that point, I'm at the same uh, physical and mental relaxation state. And that, that for me is a key. Uh, if I skip that part, I won't do as well in the whole process because I'll be starting from an already elevated or stressed situation. Um, and then it's an, an unknown starting point. So how far do you elevate yourself? Um, from there, it's really just going into um, uh, body body stretches. So just just clearing clearing the mind with you know, deep breathing and uh, and stretching for probably about five minutes. Um, I then sit down at my desk and I review um, a, some pre written notes that I would have done an hour or two beforehand that are very clear objectives for this particular flight. So it's not go out there and win the race. Um, it, I take the uh, result pressure off myself. And I'll put in there, uh, fly a closer turn in gate three um, and fly to a higher G um, level in uh, gate seven and uh, fly a smoother chicane. So I've, I've focused my attention on three items on the flight. And there might be 30 items that I need to improve, but I'll just pick the top three. And that's where my brain goes. And they've got to be things that I can do and I'm very confident I can do because that then goes, this is going to be easy. 
I can do those three things. So straight away, I'm setting in my brain, this is going to be easy and it's going to be fun. Um, I then watch a video to rehearse of me doing exactly what I'm saying I'm going to do. Um, I'll then mind fly with my eyes closed and I'll fly the track through myself, um, concentrating on those three items. And then I will um, walk the track through. Um, at that point, you know, it's basically get dressed, just focusing on, you know, every little aspect of getting dressed. It's always done the same way. So I'm not going halfway through and going, oh, I forgot to put my shoes on or yeah, I forgot, forgot to change socks. It's always the same method of getting dressed. Um, and then I'm in the plane. Um, I continue to listen to music in the plane and basically continue to focus on the now. Um, I don't I don't worry about, you know, those three points anymore. I don't worry about what the result's going to be. I'm just listening to music and, uh, yeah, I'm a musician, so I sit there and I, I try and break out all the individual uh instruments of the um of the song i'm listening to because uh, that then has me completely focused on right now as well i'm going okay i can hear the, the triangle and i can hear the clarinet and i can hear the trumpet and i can hear the the you know the bass drum and it just has me completely focused and uh, I, i'm doing that until my my team manager taps me on the shoulder and that's his signal to me that i need to start the engine so i'm just completely existing in the moment as though i'm not even in a plane I closed the aircraft and now it's just focus on um, on getting the, the plane out to the track. Once I'm in the track, it's then easy and enjoyable because I've only got three things I was looking for. I'll, I'll quickly repeat them to myself before I go in saying, you know, uh, tighter and closer on gate three, uh, more G on this pull up and uh, a better chicane. And I go, man, that's easy. Um, I have a trigger, which is basically I click, click both fingers and go, boom, here we go. Um, and that triggered to me, I just did it then. And actually all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up to go right at focus time. Um, so me just doing that to myself now, I actually triggered, um, that clarity in my head. Um, and then I go in, um, literally with a smile on my face with the thought process, I can't wait to do this as opposed to, uh, I'll always have a bad race if I go in there thinking I can't wait for this to be over. Um, and then you can only be in the zone or have flow or have temporal distortion when you are enjoying and actively um, actively believe that you can actually achieve amazing things. And, um, and so you've got to get yourself totally and utterly convinced that you are exceptional at what you can do and there's no other pressure out there. It's just you and your equipment and you're seeing how good you can be for yourself and then everything then falls into place. For those of you who um, who want to know a little bit more about the power of physical triggers, because that's, I mean, that's something that you just added in on the end there, but it's an incredibly powerful tool. Like you said, you just did it and the hairs stood up on the back of your neck, even though it's not, it's not go time. Your entire physiology believed that it was go time. Have check out um, I Am Not Your Guru and um, documentary about Tony Robbins. However you feel about Tony Robbins, you'll just see the physical triggers that he uses every time before he takes to the stage. Also check out, there's a TED Talk by an incredible individual called Amy Cuddy, who talks about power poses and the research that's been done by Harvard University to back up what happens physiologically in your body from the chemicals, the hormones, the energy, the adrenaline. When you do a power pose for a very small amount of time before taking on something that feels huge, be it a race, um, be it a sales presentation, whatever it might be. Um, that's an inc all of that was just again as a control freak 
totally fascinating to me and and I walked away from your presentation and I also I'll walk away again now with a completely different frame on what's possible from a leadership perspective when you when you hand over the reins in a smart strategic systemized way if there's if there's one thing you know if anybody's listening to this and they recognize a little bit of a control freak in in themselves and they're going to show up tomorrow to work to their teams to their businesses and they're just going to do one thing differently what would you suggest is the first thing that they should pick um i think the first thing is you have to recognize what your purpose is um and then if you're doing things that are outside of that um you need to make some changes uh, so for me it was quite simple because you know, after my accident I went right oh, what is my purpose and race week it's fly the plane as good as possible so <laughs> everything outside of that meant that the business was if I was doing it the business was broken so that at least helps you identify where the problem is and then you can go into some surgery um, with starting to restructure and uh you know look at uh, roles and responsibilities um but until yeah until you know what your purpose is as the leader um you you can just drown yourself with uh, doing everyone else's job and not even realize you're doing it well thank you so much for for making the time we've been battling internet bandwidth throughout this throughout this interview and you've stuck with it and i truly appreciate it um thank you for all the lessons that you that you've brought on leading at high speeds my pleasure it's been uh, it's been a great chat it's always it's always good to have one of these chats because uh, it helps me clarify in my own head what i do and, and why i do it as well your purpose mm, exactly Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. Thanks, as always, to our producer and the main brain behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an interview.